Good morning. So, um, the Greeks and the Romans are famous for a lot of things, but one of the things that you might not know that they created directly impacts and speaks to our passage from uh, chapter 2 from Philippians today. And that is that the, the Greeks first, and then I think the Romans followed and adapted it, are credited with creating um, a military tactic known as the phalanx. The phalanx was a body of heavily armed infantry in ancient Greece or Rome formed in close, deep ranks and files, broadly a body of troops in close array. More descriptively, they were so close together, they interlocked shields, and the shield of one protected the one on his left. And in, in their marching forward or defending whatever they were doing as this column, if one soldier was wounded or was killed in the front line, then the next one would swoop in and take his place, and they would continue to march forward. And for Paul, this was a, you're going to see this, but it's a, it's a mighty picture of the, of the power of unity in this context in war, and Paul's going to use that image in a minute. And Philippi, in and around Philippi, the uh, retiring Roman officers were given land grants so they could come and settle with their families there. So uh, the city of Philippi, is, it was colonized by the Roman army and retired Roman officers. And so the, the culture, the history the, uh, of the military, the Roman military was in the air and around Philippi. So the Philippians, the people who lived in Philippi, would have known this, would have been aware of this imagery, and certainly even the followers of Jesus that Paul writes to in the book of Philippians, or the letter to Philippians, would have known it too. <clears throat> Paul, before we get to Philippians 2, Paul is, uh, has been wrestling. He has been wrestling in chapter 1, with whether or not he's in prison, whether or not he's going to die and go and be with Christ, or he's going to live because there's more work that God has yet for him to do. And he goes back and forth on this, because he would rather die and be with Christ, but he understands that there might be something else. So in chapter 1, verses 21 to 26, he says, For, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And then he convinces himself, at least for now. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. So the question before Paul is whether or not he's going to live or die, whether or not he's going to visit with them or not. Either way, however, Paul wants them to know there's something very important that he has to say to them. And it's all setting the stage for where we're going uh, this morning. So a little bit further down, well, same, same passage, but verse 27. Whatever happens, whether I die or live, whether I come see you or not, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Striving together as one one. And we know two things immediately. According to the way Paul wrote those verses, to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is to be unified. To conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is to be unified as a church body. And two, Paul draws again on the image of the phalanx that we talked about 
draws on its unity and its power as an image of what it means for the church to be one, to be united in purpose, to protect one another. All of this talk of unity, which Paul now thinks he's going to live, but what he's laying before them is actually sort of his dying wish. If I don't make it, this still matters. This is the most important thing I can tell you. You need to be one. You need to strive together as one. You need to be a phalanx of faith moving forward for the truth of the gospel without being frightened. All of this is building up the foundation for he's going to go in chapter 2. And chapter 2, which you just heard read, begins with the word therefore, which tells you that everything he's talked about so far is pointing to this. If you're going to live your lives, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, if you're going to be unified, which is how you conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul then says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, now watch the, watch the language about unity here. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. It's all about unity. And I don't know if you've noticed yet so far in this series, this is only week three, but so far every passage we've looked at either directly teaches or assumes unity in the church as foundational. It assumes unity, it assumes loving one another, and in this one it's going to assume serving one another. They're all built on unity. And what we discover is that unity is the way we represent Christ in our community and our world. Our unity as a body of Christ, is the way we represent Christ in our community, in our world. Not great preaching, not great doctrine, not clever evangelistic tools, all those, although those can be important and good, but our unity. That's how we represent. And now it's time for fun with words. Represent. Break it down. Represent. Represent. To present again. In our unity, we make Christ present again. We represent Christ to the world or to our community. As Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father were one. It is our unity that will cause the world to take note and realize that the Father did in fact send the Son. Or in 1 John 4, 7 through 17, it is our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is our love for one another that completes God's love in the world. It is in and through our love for one another that we are like Jesus in the world. All that's in 1 John 4 there. In Colossians chapter 1 from last week, because of the hope we have that God has hidden for us and kept safe for us in heaven, out of that springs, you remember how the NIV translated it, springs faith in Christ Jesus and our love for one another, and that's how we make That's how we bear witness to the truth of the message of the gospel, our love, our unity for one another. We represent, represent Christ to the world, not with our words, not with great preaching, not with clever evangelistic tools, as I said, but our unity, 
That's our relationships with one another is how we bear witness to these things. And guess what? Our ECC staff has been reading through the book, The Good and Beautiful Community. I've read through it twice before, and this is the first time I notice this. Already through five chapters is where we are. Five chapters, every single one of them is grounded in unity. The way we become the good and beautiful community in the world, the way we bear witness to the goodness of God, the beauty of God, the truth of God, is by our unity and our love for one another. Our unity in the essential things is the basis for those first five chapters so far. And then in the verses that follow in Philippians, Paul gives two things. He gives practical instruction. He gives practical instruction, challenging instruction, and he gives us a theological reason or illustration or motivation behind it all and how we're going to live in such a way. So, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. If you find yourself getting ready to swerve into the lane of selfish ambition and vain conceit, valuing yourself above others, if that's where you find yourself, think of those as rumble strips, on the highway telling you you're about to cross into oncoming traffic. You need to pull the steering wheel back over to the right. If you don't, you're going to be going the wrong way, in the wrong lane, at high speeds, and you're going to risk damaging the unity of the church. You're going to risk breaking relationships. It's going to be a disaster. It all reminds me of the classic comedy, and it is a classic comedy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, when Steve Martin and John Candy find themselves driving on the wrong side of the highway in the wrong direction at high speeds, and the other car is trying to tell them, you're going the wrong way. Just for fun, I linked it in your Bible app live event. You can watch it later. (laughs) They're headed for disaster. They almost kill themselves in this, though it is terribly funny to watch. This is the kind of disaster we can cause with our disunity, friends. With our failure to love our sisters and brothers in Christ. Many of us uh, get caught up on that last phrase. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. If you were paying attention during the children's moment, it can make you feel a little uncomfortable when someone says, yeah, you're not supposed to be so concerned about your own interests or needs but that of others and we want to push against that we want to push against that because our first thing that we might say is oh yes but i know people who who neglect themselves they serve everybody else but they don't love and take care of themselves surely this is not a healthy thing to say to them well no it's not but paul is not assuming that he's talking to unhealthy people yes you may know people who care too much for other people and not enough for themselves And that's unhealthy. You may be one of those people. So we have room to mitigate or to temper Paul's words a bit to care for people who are in that situation. But I think we all do well to at least acknowledge that for the most part, this is not a bad way to live your life. To not so much obsess over your own needs, but to be aware of the needs of others in your life. But it sounds harsh. It sounds like we're neglecting ourselves too much. It sounds hard to do. Which is probably the reason that some of the older translations changed it a bit, added a word, 
the old NIV, 1984, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. First of all, the word only is not in the Greek. Add it, I suppose, to soften it a bit. In the midst of all the talk of self-esteem, I don't know. The word also is also suspect. In the thousands of Greek New Testaments we have, most of them have that word in there, but some of them don't. And we have to ask why. And the word translated also can also be translated rather. So I think the way the new NIV has it is probably the best. I'll back up. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's probably the best way to do it. In addition to that, the word translated as look or looking, I've shared this, you, this, uh, with you uh, before. Scopeo is the Greek word. It's the word we get our, our word scope or telescope or microscope from. To contemplate, to take aim at, to spy intently on something. This is not a passing glance, oh, I should defer to someone else. This is, a, this is a way of life in which we look at others thoughtfully, carefully, we consider, we prayerfully engage, we make it a way of our lives to care for the needs of others before obsessing on our own. Of course you care for your own needs. Please don't misunderstand that. That's not what this is saying. But in the context of the body of Christ, we need to be others-focused. We need to be others-focused. And if we still think this sounds a bit harsh... Uh, a bit hard on our, our eyes and ears. I get it. M- maybe we should soften it a bit, like some translator did, translators did a few years ago. Uh, well, then we still have to deal with places like 1 Corinthians 10.24. Paul, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. <clears throat> He's pretty consistent. There's something about what it means for us to be unified with one another, to love and serve one another, that means that we be, need to be others-focused. So now... Paul has dealt with the hard, challenging way to to engage these things in in practical ways and how we relate to one another. Now he's going to give us a theological uh, inspiration, illustration, the thing that's going to propel us forward to be able to do it in verses 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, stop just for a second. If you have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, and if you have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, and I have this... We have the same mindset. There is unity there because we have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, in the church, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is a pretty profound picture. This is where we get our energy. This is where we get our model. Jesus served us to the point of death. And this isn't the only place we find this kind of language in the New Testament. We find this kind of thing where people are jockeying for position, but Jesus says, that's not the way you're supposed to live. Over in Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of thunder, James and John come to Jesus, they say, hey, when you come into your kingdom, how about one of us sits on your left and one of us sits on your right? 
Jesus sees that they're crossing over the line, they're going in the wrong direction, so he gently but firmly pulls the wheel back over. He says, you have no idea what you're talking about. This is not how the kingdom works. He actually says, can you die with me? (laughs) This is not how it works. The other disciples, when they find out, don't do much better. Mark says they were indignant. Then Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That will be our good news this week. Christ came not to be served, but to serve. That wasn't true of the other gods, by the way. Everybody thought the other gods wanted us to serve them. Christ came not to be served, but to serve us. Jim Smith, in the Good and Beautiful Community, writes this. We are a people founded by a person who never established a church or built a building or led a finance campaign to build impressive buildings. Our leader just came and served and then died for the good of others. I suppose that would be a pretty good mission statement for a church, but one I'm not likely to see. We exist to serve others and then die just like our founder. (laughs) Try putting that on the front doors of the Facebook page. Actually, you might be surprised. There might be people who will connect with that. We say, yes, but Jesus was going to rise again. We know that. So are we. So are we. And we who know that we may die trying, we may have to give of ourselves, we know that God has a good future for us. We know that the kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are we. So we too can give ourselves away. We can be an answer to Jesus' prayer that we be unified. We can do this by serving each other, making every effort to keep the unity of of the Spirit, to be the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, to be one with one another, just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one with one another. This, This picture of servanthood to the point of death Jesus gives us reminds me of the challenge to all who want to follow him. Again, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, right after Jesus tells his disciples that he, the Messiah, is going to suffer and die. Luke 9. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. This message comes up over and over and over again. So becoming the good and beautiful community that God's mission asks us to become, becoming a people who can be the very presence of Christ in our community and in our world. We can represent Christ to the world, becoming that kind of a community, being unified, truly loving one another, and serving one another. That, my friends, is hard work. That's why it made it into our Bibles, because we need to hear it. Especially in this day and age, when the opportunity for division over all sorts of things has never been greater, at least in my lifetime. In Romans 13.10, the Apostle Paul, borrowing from Jesus' greatest commandment, says this, Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Think about that. Love does no harm 
to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of all 613 commandments of the Jewish law. It's profound. If it is true, if it is true, friends, that Christ came not to be served, but to serve, how are we to respond? If it is true that love does no harm to a neighbor, and it is in fact the fulfillment of the law, how shall we then live, especially in these troubled and divisive times? As I said, we are in a season in which I don't think it has ever been easier to be divisive and to walk away from one another. Put another way, we are living in a season, a season in which it has never been easier to do the opposite of what Jesus prayed for and Paul asks of us. It is so difficult to unify around the essentials and to love one another regardless of our differences. As I said, we are in a season where that's just too easy to do. Walk away and divide from one another. In the past year, we, ECC, we have divided over and lost people because of division over presidential election. We, ECC, have divided over and lost people because of the conversation on race and Black Lives Matter. We, ECC, have divided over and lost people because of our responses to the pandemic as a congregation. We have lost people because, in part, we did not resume in-person worship as quickly as some would like. We have lost people, in part, because we ask you to pre-register and wear a mask. And now, as we begin to see some real hope in terms of the pandemic, one of the things that weighs on my heart, and that weighs on the hearts and minds of our council and my staff, is our desire to make good decisions concerning the next steps that we take as we navigate the remainder of the pandemic, and that we do so, as the Apostle Paul says, striving as one. All along, we have sought to make decisions based on what was best for our congregation, what was best for our community, what was best for our staff. The restrictions we have put in place, the changes we have made throughout the last 13 months have all been motivated not by fear, but by Jesus' command that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And let me say something about fear. There are two kinds of fear. There's the fear that people say, I don't want to get together with people because I'm afraid we might spike the pandemic or I might catch something. Or, I don't, that's, that's one kind of fear, and I've heard about that one. There's another kind of fear. We better start meeting together and get rid of all these restrictions or we're going to keep losing people. That's also fear. All along we have sought not to make our decisions based on fear. Our decisions all along were in an effort to serve others as God in Christ has served us. So, I am leaving on a three-month sabbatical at the end of this week. And in allowing me to go, you have served Kim, you have served me, and I am grateful, I am humbled, I am blessed. Thank you. Over the past seven months, you have served the mission in your giving. We told you back in October, if we don't see some changes in giving, we're going to have to dip into the reserves. We had them. We're blessed to have reserves, but we'd rather not so we can use it for other things, for missional purposes. 
And you stepped up and you did it to this day. You're doing at least what we asked of you and sometimes a bit more, and I thank you for that. And I know that in the past 13 months, many of you have served in uncomfortable ways, things you didn't think you'd ever have to do, both behind a camera and in front of a camera in some cases, behind the scenes and on the platform, trying to create new ways to serve and to minister. And I thank you for your service to ECC, to the kingdom of God, and to our community. And all along, in my experience, we have sought to do it with integrity and grace, and that is not to be taken for granted. But it is also true that we are not completely through this difficult season, so we need to keep finding ways to serve one another. We need to keep finding ways to love one another and to unite with one another. So as I prepare to be absent for the next three months, nothing weighs more heavily on my heart right now than the decisions that leadership will have to make about responding to the changing nature of the pandemic and my absence. They are more than capable of making good, solid, thoughtful decisions. That is not what I'm concerned about. What I am concerned about is how people will respond to those decisions and the pain and the difficulty that will cause my staff in particular. So as I close, I implore you to remember that Christ did not come to be served by us, but to serve us. I implore you to trust that this is the motivation behind whatever decisions are made in the coming weeks and months. And I invite you, as we say in our ECC relational covenant, to give my staff and your counsel the benefit of the doubt, to pray for them, and to assume the best possible motivations, rather than accusing them of lesser motivations. For this, too, is part of what it means to become the beloved, good, and beautiful community that represents Christ to our community and to our world. And until until and unless we love one another in that way, until and unless we serve one another in that way, until and unless we become unified with one another, we will be less like Jesus than we could be. So I invite you, as I close us in prayer, to surrender your desires and your dreams and to lay them at the feet of Jesus this morning. I invite you to love your sisters and brothers at ECC, your leadership and my staff well in my absence and always, and I believe you will. But I just felt I needed to say some things. I invite you to more intentionally step onto the pathway and travel in the direction of becoming more like Jesus, for only when we do that will we be like Jesus in the world. Only then will we be able to complete the love of God in our community. Only then will we be able to truly represent, represent Christ and his kingdom to the world. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we, we give you thanks for the gift of Christ, for his incarnation that he laid down everything to come and serve us. And in doing so, he became not just our model, not just our inspiration, but our power. Our power to do these things for one another and for the world. So I ask, oh God, wherever we may be in this journey of this very long and difficult year plus now, that you would speak to our hearts. Help us to truly love one another, even those with whom we may disagree. Help us to truly think the best, assume the best about one another. Help us to serve one another. Help us to be unified. 
striving as one person for the truth of the gospel in all we do. We pray that you, God, would receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name.